Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. Most people who dig deep into their family histories tend to uncover the usual. An unexpected great-great-aunt, a familial home halfway around the world, maybe even a secret sibling. Hollywood producer Hopwood Dupree found an ancestral English estate bearing his own name. But Hopwood Hall was falling apart, having sat empty since World War II and becoming the victim of age and vandalism. A visit to see the 600-year-old manor, and then another visit, and another, inspired Dupree not only to try to save the hall, but also to trade movie scripts for a hard hat and move to Manchester. Hopwood Dupree joins us from his new home across the pond to describe his and the house's journey back to splendor in his new book, Downton Shabby. Thanks for chatting with me, Hopwood. Really good to be here. Thank you. So uh, first things first, you should know that you're currently living my dream, but perhaps on a slightly larger scale (laughs) on a different (laughs) continent. Uh, <laughs> well, you can come over and move in if you need to. Oh, well, hey, you know, if there's a wing for me. We do. It just might not have a floor, but it's all yours. <laughs> Perfect. I mean, I think um, you are really living the dream, I think, of a lot of people who have heard stories of ancestors that were rich or had a castle. But yours actually turned out to be true. Did you know they were going to be real? I had no idea they were going to be real. I mean, I thought they were bedtime stories, fairy tales, really. Uh, My grandfather was the family historian, also named Hopwood, which I hated the name growing up. I mean, you know, it just just really was not a cool name (laughs) to have. But he was so proud of it. And he used to tell me these bedtime stories about this Hopwood castle in England. And I always just assumed it was that, a bedtime story, and maybe a way for him to convince me that the name was cool, but it never really worked. I just sort of was in one ear and out the other ear. It wasn't until I was an adult, much, much later, where I was looking into genealogy and ancestry, and one night in Los Angeles, sitting at my computer, uh, I came across this photograph of Hopwood Hall. In England, this old black and white photograph, and I was just blown away. It's suddenly all in one moment. You know, you have these moments in life where suddenly it all comes flooding back, and that's when I realized, wow, this is is a real place. Was a real place, I thought, even then. So I dug a little bit deeper, went down that genealogy path even further, some Google searches, a couple more swigs of wine, and uh, and finally found this email address, a couple of email addresses. So I just thought, you know, why not? It was getting late in LA. So I I wrote an email and just said I was interested to know if it was still around and what state it was in and sent the email and went to bed. And by the time I woke up in the morning, Los Angeles time, I already had uh, replies in my inbox from the local council in Middleton and Rochdale, which is the area where the hall is located, saying that, yes, indeed, it did exist. It was still there. And uh, she connected me with a local historian in the email and wondered, was I coming to England anytime soon? (laughs) Was that kind of weird for you having written in just being like, I think I'm related, would love to know if this thing is real. And then suddenly they're inviting you to come over and hop over the Atlantic. Yes, it really was a surprise. Uh, But up for an adventure. And at that point in my life, I really 
you know, in retrospect, I was searching for something in, at that point. Uh, it, was, it came after the recent death of my father. My grandfather, Hopwood, had also passed away recently. So I was kind of like a lot of people do. They're searching for something to latch on to after some kind of death or, or life event like that. And I was in the same boat. And I think because the past felt predictable and solid, that's why I was looking back. So I talked to my family. We had been talking about going over to Europe around that time anyway. So it just kind of made sense. Well, let's stop off and, and see it. What I found was a beautiful but decaying building, severely decaying, collapsing in parts, water running down the walls, trees growing out of the chimney, plaster falling from the ceiling. So you had to wear a hard hat to go in. I was surprised that there were carvings in the building that date back to the 1500s, the 1400s, and you could see where water was dripping down it. There was dry rot growing and mold. And it just was so surprising to me coming from the U.S. where very little of that exists, uh, if any. You know, there I, I don't think there's any standing house in the entire United States, a timber-framed house like that. I think this probably predates the earliest one in the United States by 200 years, especially in the Manchester area. It rains more days than it doesn't. It gets very cold, and there was many broken windows and vines growing in through the windows and the roof, and it really was it was on a steady decline, a rapid decline. Things were collapsing. You could hear things collapsing in the other rooms as we were walking through. So it just was, it was falling down. But walking into a room and them saying, this is where your 14th great grandfather was born, I could reach out and touch the same walls, see the same fireplace that he would have seen. It suddenly felt so tangible and so real and such a connection, especially because of the death of my grandfather and because here was this place he had been talking about. And not only was it my ancestor, but it was his ancestors. I never expected to have that sort of feeling going into the hall. It just completely changed me in that in that short amount of time. And it didn't occur to me right away, oh, I'm going to change my whole life to save this. I, I thought I could get involved. I could do something to help, as did my family. We thought, well, what could we do? Could we write some letters or make some phone calls, send some emails, do whatever you do to try to move something along that you feel passionate about. But I didn't think that it was going to be all consuming. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like it has no become. <laughs> well, I mean, I thought it was kind of funny. Um, the local historian that you met initially who gave you the tour, Jeff, um, after you leave, he invites you to come to this 500-year-old celebration of the Battle of Flodden Field, is about the most British name I think of. <laughs> and the most British thing. Like, let's all shoot arrows to commemorate this old battle. Um, but, you know, reading his email and then like the slurry of invitations that followed, I was like, I, I wonder if Jeff knew what he was doing when he wrote you that email. He might have. He is a very smart man. And I did slowly get pulled into it little by little. And I was fascinated with the history, even just sitting there and listening to Jeff talk with his accent, the way he spoke. He was so knowledgeable about history and he had 70,000 photographs in his personal collection of uh, items that he'd, he'd uh, 
gathered over all these years. And he's just a very interesting person to talk to already. But the fact that he knew so much about the hall, and I think also because of the loss of my father and grandfather, Jeff suddenly sort of represented them in a way to me. But he just was so friendly and so welcoming, as was his whole family. And my family and his family hit it off. He would show us around to these old ruins and places that our ancestors had been. And the way he would tell the story, you would be so drawn in. I mean, we were mesmerized from my my mother down to my young niece. But I think, you know, you wonder what would have happened if I hadn't met Jeff. What happened between like, maybe we can write some letters. Maybe I can shoot an arrow and be the nominal Lord Hopwood. (laughs) How do you get from that to you know, actually doing the thing, actually, you know, putting on a hard hat, going in and restoring this? Well, it was over years. You know, I first visited in 2013, and I didn't actually move over till the end of 2017. So a number of years had passed, and I started making visits regularly. You know, every three or four months, I would go. And because I knew Jeff and his family and other locals that became friends, very quick friends, And as strange as it sounds, I felt like a local in a town I had never been to. But everyone was so welcoming and so friendly that it just just was a place I looked forward to going. And there was this tremendous passion within the community to save the hall. So many people were connected to the hall. You know, as you can imagine, with, with the building that had been there for 600 years, many of the people had growing up with it. They remembered the hall when it was still looking beautiful. Many had parents or grandparents that worked there or lived on the estate. Uh, I met families that were gardeners there and the chauffeur, um, someone whose grandmother was the cook. So they were all tied into it already. And going back even further, you know, in the in the 17 and 1800s, well, I think it was 1700s, actually, that the estate had more people working on it than living in Middleton. So it was a, a massive employer in that area. So everybody knew it and and they were passionate about it and they couldn't believe that it had gotten to this state. There were multiple plans of what could be done to save it. When I first got involved, it really was a hotel proposal and there was big hopes around that. The community was behind it. And it really seemed like it was going to go through. But there are are and were challenging access issues to get into the hall, which presented really a lot of issues and problems to make it commercially viable. So it was going to take somebody who wasn't looking at the commercial gain from it or the potential commercial gain. It had to be somebody or some people, a group of people that were looking at it just for the pure love and passion of saving this building which are few and far between, especially in England, where there are so many historic buildings that need to be rescued. But I would not have done any of it without the passion of the community, because there's no way you could do a project like this alone. (laughs) There's just no way I could have done it, especially coming from one country to another country where I really knew no one when I started out. So really won me over and brought me in and, and made it feel like home. Yeah. I mean, it's all very, it's much easier, I think, if you have someone who's extremely independently wealthy involved, which um, brings me to my next question, which is you you did meet such a person, Dr. Rolf, who had restored a castle, I think that was like something like four times as large as Hopwood Hall and had done it like one and a half times. (laughs) And 
And he connected you to this network, almost like this society of historic homeowners in England. Correct. So what's this group like? I mean, are they all countesses and marchionesses? <laughs> well, it's a group called Historic Houses, and it's a group of homeowners who are protecting, preserving their homes. Uh, and most of them are open for some type of tourism element or weddings or events or things like that. Because as you can imagine, many of these estates were built long ago in a different time where they were self-sufficient. And like I said earlier about Hopwood Hall, they mostly employed much of the towns around them. So in a way, they were like big hotels. They had people coming and going, but they had a way of supporting themselves. And they were set up to almost be like a resort. Obviously, our lives have changed. The world is completely different. So uh, one family living in an 80-bedroom house out in the countryside is just not really possible to do anymore. So it's something that people have to learn to reinvent to keep these houses alive. And they're a big draw to England. The historic houses are some of the most important tourist attractions in uh, the country. So to keep those going and make them available for public access and events is really important, but it's also challenging. So this group is people who have come together, who have either inherited or purchased or been part of a historic house like this. And in a way, it's like a support group um, because they're all going through it. It's a non-competitive support group that help each other. And even though maybe one big house is near another one that's and they're both doing weddings and competing for wedding business, they're more than happy to help each other to figure out how to keep the lights on in these houses because everybody knows and can commiserate how challenging it is. From the outside, I think growing up in the America, looking in and seeing some of these big houses from afar, I always thought it was one thing. Now that I'm in that group and I know a lot of these homeowners, I really appreciate what they're doing. It's not just luxury living in a big house. It's incredibly challenging, often an albatross for people to try to maintain and manage and run and care for these houses. It is, it really is a testament to their passion. And at the end of the day, all the historic homeowners are really just custodians. They're taking care of it to pass it along for the next generations, for future public use, in a way, it's like a museum. You're you're not really able to sell anything. You're not able to cash in on the art collections or, or the furnishings. You're passing it along for people to experience again in the future. And just the care that goes into watching over a library of old books or portraits that have been done hundreds of years ago, I mean, it is really incredibly expensive and challenging. You have to have a staff of people that are experts in the field. It comes with a hefty price tag. One of the big differences between Hopwood Hall and some of the other historic houses is it was like totally empty by the time you got it. Um, And all of the beds, oil paintings, historic, you know, artifacts and ephemera that were in there were gone. Like, what happened to those original objects? And I mean, 
if you can get them back, are you trying to get them back? And if you can't, like, how do you fill a, a like a whole house with historic <laughs> stuff? Yes, it will be quite a challenge to get it all back. But the good news is that there was a catalog produced in the 1920s when much of the uh, chattels, as they call them, were auctioned off. So the artwork, the the beds, the furniture, the vases, all of that that was auctioned off. There will be records of where it's gone or at least where it went from there. So a lot of the pieces would be of some historical significance. So there would be a way to track some of it. So we would love to get some of those pieces returned to the hall. We would love to, especially in the case of the portraits, we'd love to at least recreate them, have reproductions of them. If they exist, they probably are hanging in another hall or castle somewhere. Someone probably bought them in an auction in the 1920s and have them at their house. But if we can identify them and track them down, then they may let us photograph them and, and reproduce them. So I'd love to do some of that. We're also looking for original pieces. I've met with auctioneers and auction houses to have them be on the lookout for pieces that might have come from Hopwood Hall. And we've had some returned. A lot of local people have contacted us and returned items that they believe were from there. We had someone contact us and say there's a big, probably an eight foot long hand carved mahogany wood bench that's come back to the hall. There's a desk that was there. Then we've had people contact us who have items like a grand piano that they no longer want, a set of dining room chairs that are hand carved and probably from the 17 or early 1800s also donated to the hall because as they are getting older and some have left them uh, as legacy gifts in their will, they want a place where these items that were important to their family and that community to be left in the community. So Hopwood Hall obviously needs a lot of furniture. So that that's kind of how we're getting there. I was surprised when um, reading your book, the sort of restoration specialist who's on staff at the hall, Bob, you know, you're offering to help. And he says, you know, to be honest, Hopwood, your help often just slows me down. Um, <laughs> and I didn't, I know I didn't do a Manchester accent, but I'll spare you. It's okay. I can't do one yet either. So. <laughs> so how did you figure it out? How did you, you know, you look competent on your YouTube channel. You look the part at least. I try. It's still very difficult. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm handy innately. I think I try to learn. I mean, I've had wonderful teachers like Bob. He's taught me a lot, especially the appreciation of the old. I think a lot of times in renovations projects in the U.S., at least the ones that I've been involved in, you would simply just go to Home Depot and pick up some uh, drywall and some paint and drive it home and put it up and it would it would be a relatively painless and quick process. Whereas this, it's about handmade materials. And if you put the wrong material on old brick, it's going to destroy it. And you have heritage organizations that rightfully watch over you to make sure you're doing it correctly. And uh, everything is permitted and watched and um, very carefully monitored. So there's a whole other level of it that goes into saving these houses and renovating these houses and restoring them. So to have someone like Bob there to show me the ropes has been really a, a blessing, but also really given me an appreciation of how long everything takes. We were removing a ceiling that was 
in threat of collapsing because water was leaking in. And it was a architecturally significant ceiling with uh, wonderful plaster moldings that had been done by Edgar Wood, who was a known architect, part of the arts and crafts movement. And the process by which we had to remove these little pieces, piece by piece, and take them down and number them and reassemble them, it took us days and took Bob even more time uh, probably because I did slow him down, but <laughs> I think that was one that was fairly early on where I got to really see how uh, painstaking it was going to be to restore the hall. But at the same time, so worth it, so beautiful when you took them down and you could see the possibilities for the future of how we were going to reinstate it at some point. I think the ceiling is what I'm thinking of. At one point in the book, you're like, why can't we just put a bunch of two by fours on there? And I think that would have <laughs> been my response too. What process of restoration surprised you the most? I think undoing a lot of the recent past. In the 1950s and 1960s, uh, there was a lot of these houses were institutionalized. and Or even in World War II, a lot of them were turned into uh, hospitals and bases. And uh, in the case of Hopwood Hall, it was turned into a teacher training college. So... A lot of materials were used in that era where maybe they didn't know exactly what was good or bad for some of that ancient brick or wood. And so things were kind of very quickly put up and it caused a lot of damage and all of that has to be undone. And so we've been going through that process for years, really, of trying to peel back the layers of what happened in the 20th century to get back to the 15th century. And also the the damage of the 21st and even the 20th century, because there's just like some heartbreaking vandalism that happens to the hall. How do you fix like a shattered piece of fireplace? It really is heartbreaking, as you say, to see the vandalism and the thefts that have occurred at places like Hopwood Hall. It's very tricky to try to save old wood. You also don't want it to be damaged further once it's broken and splintered. So it's got to be packaged up and stored carefully. It's not something that Bob and I could just super glue back together. We really have to wait until we're ready to put it back up. So a lot of the stuff that's been broken, we've just put aside for safekeeping until we're into that part where we can actually restore it and then uh, reinstate it on the wall. So for instance, we walked in one morning and there was a marriage plaque, a ceremonial marriage plaque for two of my ancestors that was carved with their initials ES and the date 1689. And it was really a a pride and joy of the hall because it was just so well preserved. And we walked in there one morning and we found it smashed on the floor. So there's two ways of looking at it. One we were devastated, but the good news is they didn't steal it. They they left it. So they didn't even know what they were doing. I think they just were probably kids that just didn't care, broke it, and ran out. And there's story after story after story like that throughout the hall over the years where it's been vandalized. Now we've got 24-7 security. We've got cameras. We've got you know this tall security fence. So we're much more well-equipped now but back then it was really in a precarious situation where people could find their way in one way or the other if they wanted to of course they were risking their life and limb and we have a few spots in the house where you can see someone's fallen through i mean you can see almost a body 
the, the space of a body within a, a floorboards that must have fallen through. And then you can see a body imprint on the ground where they must have landed. Um, so it's people have definitely <laughs> fallen and gotten hurt. So for the majority of the book, you couldn't even go to the second floor. Can you now travel to the second floor? Are the staircases secure? Now much of the house is accessible, which is incredible. We can walk around into rooms I've never been in, and I'm still discovering new rooms. Even last week, I was just in a new small room, but we opened a door that I'd never noticed before, and there was another room in there. So it's... uh, I never know what we're going to find on a daily basis. And I'm sure there's probably still more rooms to find and and more secrets to uncover. But I think by the end of the summer, we're supposed to be able to go into every area of the hall. Um, It all should be stabilized by then. And uh, that will be a great day because then it really will truly be saved for generations. Even if I did nothing more, uh, it's good to know that the hall would still last. It wouldn't be lost in five to 10 years. Yeah. Well, I mean, what is your timeline for getting it to the ultimate dream? I've almost given up on timelines. (laughs) The one thing I have learned in looking at 600 years worth of history is my life is just a blip. And one year, two years, three years is even less of a blip. So it all just feels like a blink of an eye. But I would like to see sections of the hall begin to be opened as early as the next few months and then start to open a different section each year, each summer. And hopefully within three years, we would have much of it open. And within five, we would have everything open along with the gardens and walking paths and everything else like that. So I'm looking at, you know, five years. When I first started this project, I said, oh, we'll have this done in three. (laughs) Well, (laughs) um, which, you know, it's it just uh, what I wasn't accounting for was all of the things are out of my control, which are the time that it takes to get approvals and uh, unexpected things like dry rot behind walls and (laughs) Just what you can't even imagine is there is there in that house. And and then, of course, the pandemic slowed us down considerably. But but taking all of those things into account, uh, I feel like, yes, we're, we're making good progress. We have been able to just keep chugging along. And it's uh, it looks like a different place now. I mean, it really looks amazing. And uh, it's getting better and better every day. We have links in the show notes to Hopwood Dupree's new book, Downton Shabby, One American's Ultimate DIY Adventure Restoring His Family's English Castle. And if you'd like to see the inside of the house, you can follow along Dupree's adventures on his YouTube channel. I also did an interview last year with Adrian Tinniswood on the decline of the English country house. So if you're curious about the historical reasons for why so many houses like Hopwood Hall are in various states of disrepair, do check that interview out. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Mm-hmm.